Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of business, and lessons learned. Boy, can override the worries and depression. Here are your Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Good afternoon. This is Carmen Nazario. Happy Friday to all. Josh Carter is not here today, but uh, we're happy for him. He's taking a little spring break with his kids. He'll be here next week. And today we are featuring another veteran-owned business. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, this is the show where we get to interview uh, remarkable veteran enterprises and their spouses as well. So today... We have Bobby Herrera. Bobby is co-founder of the Populous Group, and I am excited because I know Bobby. He's also a gifted speaker, and he just released a new book, so it's going to be a great show today. Welcome, Bobby Herrera. Happy to be here, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So, what, Bobby, what we like to do at the beginning of the, of the show is talk about where you're from and then what led you into the military. And, and then we'll go later into, you know, what drove you to start your business and find out about your business. But today we'll get to talk a little bit about your book as well. Sounds that great. The upcoming release. Awesome. So, tell me, where did you, uh, where are you from? And uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, your, your younger years prior to going into the military. So I was born in southeastern New Mexico, small town. There's more people in this building that we're in than the town I grew up in. And my uh, story started there. I was the first child born in the United States. I'm one of 13. So wow. I, still, I still eat with my elbows on the table. Wow, 13. I didn't know that part. Eight oh. boys, five girls. My goodness, your parents were really busy. Oh, they're saints. Yeah. And so uh, you were the first one born there, and then the other ones were born in Mexico? Mexico. Okay. Yeah, that's where the story started. Okay, the story starts in Mexico, and uh, you were born there and then pretty much raised in there prior to joining the military? I grew up in southeastern New Mexico, and Uh it was from there that I raised my hand and joined the Army. 1987, one of the best choices I ever made. Wonderful. And then what led you to join the Army? Were you the first uh, doing that? Obviously, because your family was uh, living in Mexico prior to that. As a do, do you mind if I tell you a quick story about that? Tell me. I, we yeah. want We yeah. This story is about you, so sure. you, I want to sure. hear everything. Sure. So my dad had always wanted to join the military. And I have a picture of his draft card from Mexico. It's one of the first things that I see when I turn the lights on in the barn, my office. And family hardship hit his story at a very unfortunate time. And he was unable to do that. And he used to tell me these stories about how he wanted to serve. And that was a big part of how he felt he could take control of his story because poverty and struggle had been a big part of our 
family story for a long time. Well, you fast forward, and I hear these stories growing up. The day that I turned 18, I had the Army recruiter pick me up outside of the gym really early in the morning. She drives me to Hobbs, New Mexico, which was about 40 miles where I grew up. I get on a bus to Amarillo, Texas. There was a reception station there. That's where I went through all the tests and the physical and the receiving station to finally take the oath oath the next day. Well, I told three people, my brother, my basketball coach, and my best friend. And I didn't tell my parents. She picked me up on my 18th birthday. Well, the next day, I get back late in the evening. And my dad, having raised 13 kids, Mm. there were boundaries you didn't cross with him. Mm. And not telling him where I was going to be was a big violation of one of his boundaries. Well, that evening I get home, and when I walk in the front door, he's sitting at the table, and he sits up, and he starts making his way towards me, and I knew I had to act fast. You were in trouble. I was in (laughs) trouble, and I had my army contract in my hand, and so I immediately rushed to the kitchen, and I threw it on the table, and he looks at me, and he says, what is that? And I said, Dad, I joined the army. And it stopped him dead in his tracks. Wow. And he turned around and he walks to the kitchen window and he's looking outside and I see his shoulders start to shake. It was the second time in my life that I'd seen my dad cry. Wow. And he turned around and he looked at me and he said, do you know what you're doing? Mm. And I said, yes. I said, I'm completing your dream, dad. Mm. So... And, and so, I, well, I, I, so I raised my hand for two reasons. One, mm-hmm. when my dad would tell me that story of how bad he wanted to serve and when he was, was unable to do so, mm-hmm. I could feel that there was a hole in his heart. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to feel that for him. Mm-hmm. And second, I just had this overwhelming desire, like many other veterans, to be a part of something bigger than myself. Mm-hmm. And I saw the Army as that for my desire to serve. Plus, I also saw it as an opportunity to take control of a story that I desperately wanted to take care of because struggle had been a big part of my family story up until then. Yes, and and you have a wonderful story, uh, the bus story. Can you share that with our audience? It's such an inspirational story. Sure, I'd be happy to. A year before that trip to go sign for the Army... My brother Ed and I were on a return trip home from a basketball game. And on the way, we stopped for dinner. Everybody unloaded off the bus, except for me and Ed. A few moments after the team unloaded, this gentleman steps on board the bus. Happened to be one of the dads to the other players. And he teased me a little bit because Ed had outscored me that night. And then he said something to me that I will always remember. Bobby, it would make me very happy if you would allow me to buy you boys dinner so you can join the rest of the team. Nobody has to know. All you have to do to thank me is do the same thing for another great kid just like you on this bus. Awesome. Carmen, that moment had a profound impact on me. Mm -hmm. 
life-changing we, moment. We we had so much struggle in our story up to that point, mm-hmm. and I wanted nothing more than to get off that bus. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't my struggle. My struggle was, like you and everyone else, I wanted my story to matter. Mm-hmm. And with one true act of leadership, mm-hmm. he showed me that I could be a part of something, I could create something that would allow me to pay forward that gift to other kids like me who were born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide. And it became the invisible force that drove me. It gave me, it gave me meaning, but more than anything, it gave me identity. And it, posed, it helped me. He posed the challenge, and you took it. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. That's and, awesome. And then a year later, when I joined the Army, that was my first step on the mountain that I wanted to climb in order to pay forward that kind act of generosity. That's wonderful. I love that story. So you went into the military, and and what did you end up doing in the military? So I went to basic training in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I joined the Army. I was, uh, you know, for those of us that understand the military terminology, I was a 13 Fox, a Ford Observer. And it's baffling to me that they let a 19-year-old me Mm -hmm. blow things up. Oh, so, yeah, we've heard that before a lot on here, yeah. yeah you know, the, the military is wonderful. They, like, they teach us from a leadership perspective, like the art of dangerous trust. Dangerous and trust, I like They that. absolutely gave me more responsibility than I was ready for. Wow. And so I, was, I completed my training there. I was stationed in Fort uh, Polk, Louisiana, did some time there, and I also did a pretty unique assignment in Fort Richardson, Alaska. Uh, during my tenure there, and uh, total, I did about eight years uh, between active duty and National Guard for the military, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine not having experienced that. It's paid forward so many lessons and gifts that have helped me to this day and continue to help me. Yeah, so um, what what was the military occupational specialty then, MOS? Yeah, MOS, that's right. Yeah. It, it, was, it was 13 uh, Fox. 13 Fox, which is artillery. artillery. Okay. You got it. Okay. Yeah. So after the military, uh, what happens then? I went back to New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I went to New Mexico State University. Go Aggies. Mm-hmm. And we still can't get past the first round in the national tournament. We'll, we'll get there. We'll keep, we'll keep fighting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went there. My younger brother, Ed, who's... My best friend, he's been a big part of my company story. He and I attended New Mexico State together. And after that part of um, my story, Carmen, I I just bounced around quite a bit after that. So you went to New Mexico State, and what did you study there? I studied finance and accounting. And what's interesting about that is like, you know, most young Mm -hmm. students, you have no idea what you want to do. I was pretty good at numbers, and uh-huh. I did that because my older brother said that I needed to, uh-huh. and you know I did it. I was pretty good with it, and then once I finished college, uh-huh. I got a great opportunity with an organization out in St. Louis, and I was an accountant. But I was I was I was more interested in happy hour than I was balancing the books. I just can't imagine you no. as an accountant after no. knowing a little bit about you. No. So we're gonna take a quick break right now and we'll be back with Bobby.
CPA dudes where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. We're back with Bobby Herrera, the co-founder of Populous Group. Uh, by the way, Populous, uh, what does that stand for? Latin for people. I, uh, I love it. Populous Group. Okay, so uh, after the military, we were talking about you went and uh, did an accounting job. Now, you probably never imagined that you would be doing that, right? I, did I you had like, no idea. Did you like that? Did you like doing accounting? I, I didn't love it. No, I didn't love it. I learned a great deal. And, you know, sometimes when you're experiencing something early in life, you don't realize how big of a role it's going to play in the future. Exactly. You know, starting a business eventually, had I not had that foundational experience, I think I would have really struggled later on when Mm -hmm. I was starting to understand my business. And that's a real big part of your ecosystem in any organization. So it is. I'm very fortunate that I had that experience. It is. It is vital. Um, I also have a business background, and it. I feel that that helped me when I started my business as well. So, how long did you do accounting work for? A little over two years. A little uh, about two and a half years. And while I was there, Carmen, I um, uh, I was, I really wanted to get into a sales role. So the organization that I was with mm-hmm. had the sales roles that were global and I wanted to use my Spanish. You know, I'm fluent in Spanish. I didn't speak English until I was seven and I wanted to apply that, those language skills into a sales role. Mm -hmm. And I was declined three times. No kidding. Finally, uh, a friend of mine that I'd gone to school with Mm -hmm. had introduced me to some other really good people that I'd met with a fast-growing organization back then that Mm -hmm. was the industry that I am in now. And I think out of frustration from not getting some of those opportunities, I finally said yes to them courting me to join that company. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, most things in life you plan work out differently, right? Right. And what was that company? Uh, it's a great organization. It's the, now the name of the company is Allegis Group. Back then it was named oh, Aerotech. Okay. And yeah. they're one of the, one of the, the best recruiting firms in the country, and back then, uh, it was primarily focusing on engineering, and when they were courting me and they were asking me, you know, to join, and we were going through that that stage, I had no idea the industry even existed, and, you know, so it was an accidental, very fortunate step for me, and at Mm -hmm. that time, they were experiencing experiencing some real exciting growth, and so I learned by being thrown into a very fast-paced environment and they were very supportive they uh, they oh, were wonderful and what were you, what was your role there were you doing sales I did I did sales I did recruiting uh, I did a lot of operational roles mm-hmm. and as I reflect back on my my journey there I had so many versatile roles that I believe really balanced out that foundational accounting and finance role because when you start an organization mm-hmm. you're doing it all you are and you get exposed to every part of the ecosystem of trying to build a company mm-hmm. and i was gaining a lot of these experiences not knowing that it was going to be such a blessing in the future yeah 
That's awesome. I'm very, very fortunate to have crossed paths with that and, organization. And how long were you with, well, they're a league as now, but back then they were a different Aerotech. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, they're a legious group now. It's a family of some very large companies. One, wonderful organization. Right. Uh, I'm acquainted with them. Right, right. yeah. So how long uh, were you with them? I was with them uh, a little under 10 years. Oh, that's a that's yeah. a good tenure. So ten years. I bounced around to. I started in Chicago, then mm-hmm. I went back to Albuquerque, and then I went to the West Coast, and I did various roles while I was in California. Uh, I was overseeing their Western region uh, as they were growing and expanding and getting into new areas of that industry. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, mm-hmm. an interesting dynamic was happening in in the recruiting industry. And as you know, there's a raging war for talent out there. Right. Regardless of the size of organization that you are. Right. And companies needed more than just a recruiting company. And we started seeing these Mm -hmm. niche type employment service type needs evolve Mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. And after a while, the opportunity presented itself for me to finally start my own organization in 2002. Okay, so you started yours in 2002, and uh, did you go solo, or did you have a co-founder with you at that time? Well, I started with two other uh, gentlemen Mm -hmm. that are no longer with the organization. We were together. Mm -hmm. We started it together, and um, it was a really interesting journey in the beginning. I was in California. One Mm -hmm. of the other gentlemen was in uh, Baltimore, and then Mm -hmm. another one was in Michigan. Well... Part of the original plan was we all went to Detroit, Michigan mm-hmm. in the early 2000s mm-hmm. to start this journey. And if you remember, things weren't very positive in the automotive industry at that time. Yes. So on top of starting an organization, mm-hmm. which is overwhelming enough, we did it at a time when the automotive industry was about to get hit with a very challenging time. and in their history. And how did that go? Well, I call the first five years the most fun I never want to have again. (laughs) Uh, We learned a lot of hard lessons. mm -hmm. Yeah, so. So that means, you know, you learn even from things that didn't go so well, or would you say that? Absolutely. When, when uh, When I do speaking engagements, Carmen, I always, I'm not a big bio guy. Mm-hmm. But part of my introduction is I'm an entrepreneur who's made a lot of mistakes. Yeah, I made good... the majority of them in those first five to ten years. Oh, well, that's good. So, they were blessings. You know, yeah. that's how you learn. That is how you learn. That's uh, the best way uh, to learn. And so, uh, was the company named Populous at that time? Populous Group, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so... Uh, Tell me more about the company. Uh, you know, you started it, you learned, and then after the first five years, did you branch out or did you have, uh, what kind of growth did you have when you started? Well, let me back up a little bit, right? So, like in business, I believe that you have to ask yourself some real pointed, simple questions mm-hmm. that are going to give you the control that you desperately want as an entrepreneur mm-hmm. to be able to build what you imagine. And the first question that I've learned from being a student of Patrick Lencioni's work is, why do you exist? And that's the bus story, right? And so we believe that everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed. That's at the essence of why we exist. 
And as an entrepreneur, in my experience, there's something bigger than your drive for financial security that's driving you. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was the bus story and building something that would allow me to pay forward that kind act of generosity. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is how do we behave? And that's all about the type of people that you surround yourself with, the culture that you want to build, and making sure that there is very clear boundaries about how you're going to climb as one. That's what we call it, right? I'm a mountains guy. Mm -hmm. I love the mountains. I actually call my employees Mm -hmm. climbers because of my time in the military. Right. Like I still to this day know the essence of what it means to be a soldier. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, the word employs, mm-hmm. like what's it mean? It's a term, mm-hmm. right? And I call my employees climbers mm-hmm. because we're all pursuing our own climb. We're all continually improving. I believe there's a summit that we're all pursuing. Mm-hmm. And that's why I call my employees climbers. But our term is we climb as one. And that's our culture code. And those are the boundaries in terms of how we behave. That's awesome. And then the third one is the one that most people go to right away. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Right? And so that right there, you have to have very clear understanding of the problem that you want to solve for the world. Mm-hmm. And for us, as I was growing up in the recruiting industry, I noticed that a lot of organizations were having a hard time managing their non-permanent workforce. Right, so an organization, they have two workforces. They have their permanent workforce, mm-hmm. which they usually have a pretty good grip on, mm-hmm. and then they have their non-permanent workforce. And that can be a ball of yarn for people. Mm-hmm. They're independent contractors, there's consultants, there's temporary contractors, there's foreign nationals. As the war for talent has escalated, that population mm-hmm. of the workforce continues to increase. In real simple English, mm-hmm. we help organizations better manage that non-permanent workforce. Yeah, that's so needed today. Oh, it's yeah. it's a critical need. So we're going to take a, another quick break, and we'll be back with Bobby Herrera. Today's episode of The Veteran Startups is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. For instance, media relations. Publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this, press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for the future of your business. Check them out at publicize.co and tell them Carmen and Josh sent you. And we're back with Bobby Herrera. Bobby is the co-founder of Populous Group. So we were talking about a little bit about the culture of your company, mm-hmm. and you gave us three good points of you know why you exist. And uh, I want to 
summarize those again sure. and um, because I think they're really important. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a question all companies should be asking themselves and reviewing it from time to time. So the first one was uh, why you exist and then uh, how you behave and what you do, right? Correct. Yeah. And, and you describe that quite well. And so... Uh, it just is very important. Culture is very important nowadays with a lot of companies. And and so can you tell us a little bit of how you went about implementing that culture? You know, it's kind of cool that you call your employees climbers. Um, I like that. I know that years ago Walmart would call them associates. And so, uh, so how do you do that I- internally? I mean... When do you call them climbers or hi climber or how does how does that how did that does that look like on a day to day basis? Sure. Um, so the 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 origin and the essence of it I already shared. Right. Mm-hmm. I wanted anyone that ever joined our community to know what it meant to be a part of populist group, and it wasn't always that way though. You know, as I mentioned, the first five years most fun I never want to have again. Right. Well, the second five years, Carmen, mm-hmm. I call it the holy bleep era. Holy bleep. Okay. Yes, insert whatever whatever your favorite bleep is. We had some great return on luck from those first five years. We put mm-hmm. in a lot of hard work. And in those second five years, we experienced some very fortunate growth. Wow. Well, if you recall, I started this uh, journey with two other gentlemen. And right. they're great friends of mine to this day. However, we weren't the right fit for one another to start a business mm-hmm. together. That's a, that's a big decision. Mm-hmm. So after that chapter ended and it was just myself, although that was a very painful yet amicably, amicable event, mm-hmm. I was now the sole owner of the culture. So basically, I now had full control and autonomy of what I wanted to build. Mm-hmm. So I'll take you back to a story when I first started the company. My wife and I were living in California, mm-hmm. and we were going to move to Detroit to start this journey. And before we left California, we had shipped our stuff out. Neither one of us had ever lived in Detroit. Well, this was a big step for us. We had been married six months, and we mm-hmm. were going for broke. Well, having little exposure to what this entrepreneurial journey was going to look like, mm-hmm. we decided to take a road trip when we made the move. And when we left California, we took the two-day journey to drive to Detroit. Mm-hmm. And we had talked about all the potential scenarios around this next step for us. Well, on the way, we talked about it even more. And Ross and I are different. She's a planner. I'm a cowboy. I'm an organizational (laughs) nightmare. And she wants to know the details of how we're going to do it and how we were going to be successful. What's going to happen next? I'm pretty pretty comfortable with just roaming and and letting things happen. Well, we were about 100 miles from Detroit. Mm -hmm. And she asked me, a very simple question. She said, honey, is this going to work out? And I could tell that she was scared. And I was like, 
I really believe in my heart that it is. And then she asked me the easiest question that she's ever asked me. She said, are you scared? And I said, I'm terrified. But I knew that I wanted to build something that would allow me to pay forward what I'd experienced that night on the bus. Mm -hmm. And so I had this raging inside of me. Mm -hmm. And for the remaining balance of that trip, I explained to her that I want to build a community that is, feels like they're part of something bigger than themselves, where people are worthy to be themselves, where people always tell the truth, no matter what the circumstances are, where we always have each other's back, where mm -hmm. we don't take ourselves too seriously and we act like kids who have a lot to learn, where we remain humble and where we learn from the best. And so I started explaining to her, in a sense, how I wanted my company to feel. And then she says, how are you going to do that? Mm -hmm. I'm like, I have no idea. I'll find a way. Heavenly culture. <laughs> yeah. Goodness. Well, what I, what it, the reason I explained that to you is I imagined with, this, with great detail what mm -hmm. I wanted the company that I wanted to build mm -hmm. to feel like. Except for those first five years, I was so focused on survival that culture took a back seat. Mm -hmm. And all these things that I wanted to bring to life, I didn't know how. But the biggest mistake that I made was I never communicated with the people that I was bringing in what I had communicated with my wife. I never shared what I imagined. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew that but me. Mm -hmm. I didn't even tell the bus story to the people that were working with me until like year nine. So mm -hmm. I made two real big mistakes. One, I didn't share with the people that were giving me time away from their family to help me the force that drove me. So one, I didn't tell that story. And two, I never shared with them what I imagined. And you can't build something without telling your story and without sharing what you imagine. Carmen, once I did, they helped me, it. and we built it together. And that became our culture code. What I described to Rosalind on that road trip mm -hmm. eventually became our culture code, mm -hmm. our boundary, mm -hmm. our code in which we were going to build this community together. That's wonderful. You know, and you just shared two points. One of the questions we asked towards the end of the show is what kind of mistakes you made. And so you've already shared that. And, and those are really good lessons to hear. Uh, you know, you mentioned you had, uh, you were terrified because uh, there was some, sounds like financial struggles and a lot of businesses go through that, particularly when you're starting off or, you know, Things happen in the economy. And so how did you overcome, you know, your circumstances in terms of, you know, the financial arena? Well, any business, mm -hmm. regardless of what problem you're trying to solve for the world, mm -hmm. money's going to be tight. And it took us a while to get, get out of that. You know, mm -hmm. that's part of being an entrepreneur. You have mm -hmm. to, you know, be very creative. You have to go off the beaten path. You know, right. it, took, it took at least five, six years mm -hmm. to finally get to a point where we felt like we could keep reinvesting and actually even, even make money. You're not going to make money for, for a while, and you need to prepare yourself for that. 
Right. And and also, too, the reason I asked, because I was looking at your timeline. You started the business mm-hmm. in 2002, and then uh, you talked about the first five years, and then mm-hmm. the second five years, and then, you know, we had that e- economic struggle back in 2009 and 2010, and the big national banks weren't loaning any money at all to small businesses, I know. And so um, I think there was a time when a lot of small business had to fold up because of that. So that typically uh, the financial arena is is a major uh, a major kind of uh, event and not only event, but it, it does require lots of planning and planning ahead of time, you know, if you're going to make it. But yeah, so, but you stayed on with it and, you know, you, uh, the folks that you were involved with embraced your vision. So you shared that vision and it looks like, you know, they embraced it and, and uh, so let's fast forward uh, to, I mean, you've got a lot of things going on because I know you're uh, an active speaker and I've, uh, you've been a keynote speaker at several business events that I went to. So how did that, how do you start doing that? Because I think that led to writing your book, sure, right? Sure, Yeah. Well, my dad was a storyteller and okay. he was a great storyteller. Oh, and wow. I didn't realize growing up the gift that he was sharing with me. Mm-hmm. And my dad had a way of telling stories. And he, uh, he'd always tell me a story and then he'd tell me the lesson. And he'd ask me a question mm-hmm. about the story and the lesson that I just shared that would make my hamster wheel spin and make me think about it. And then he would... Uh, in his own way, you know, he was a bit of like the Mexican Paul Harvey. You remember Paul Harvey, mm-hmm. the rest of the story, you know, we're dating mm-hmm. ourselves a little bit there. But yeah. after that, he would say, and son, you know, the best part of that story. And he would tell me about something that happened after. And I just organically learned how to tell stories from rarely leaving my dad's side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's interesting in business we have this like facade that you can't communicate that way. And mm-hmm. we've all sat through these boring presentations yeah. and these mind numbing conferences that we've all gone to. Right. And the person starts speaking mm-hmm. and you're drifting. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they're not telling a story. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to realize when I started my company, how powerful storytelling was because I bought into that dogma that, mm-hmm. okay, I have to do it this way. Mm-hmm. But once I figured that out, I, I believe storytelling is arguably one of the most critical competence, competencies, if not the most critical competency of leadership. Because when I you agree. think about it, right? Story, your role as a leader, your role as an entrepreneur is mm-hmm. to narrate that story. And so you have to have exceptional clarity with it. You have to be able to do it in a manner that keeps people engaged. Yeah, I I agree, and your stories are so wonderful. So, uh, so you started doing these speaking engagements at different venues, and then uh, I'm sure you did them at your company probably first, and and then how did that lead into the book? Well, the, and the, so the the, sure. the name of the book is the gift of struggle, right? Right. And I I love the title. So. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the climbers at Populous Group, they've, you know, they're in a sense like my kids. Like they were probably the best training 
for mm-hmm. my journey into parenthood. Mm-hmm. They've heard these stories so many times that when I tell them, they just roll their eyes like, yeah, mm-hmm. I know, Bobby, I know. <laughs> and uh, so absolutely, I told and I tell those stories over and over and over within populist group. But to answer your question directly, I actually got into like the speaking by going to speak to kids and, you know, paying forward that that act of generosity from mm. Mr. Teague. And, you know, I do, we do a lot and I do a lot for kids born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide, like, like myself mm-hmm. and with, and keeping my part of that promise right. that, uh, from that gift Mr. Teague gave me. And I also do a lot of speaking for veterans and that that's at the core of where my storytelling started. And I would, I'll tell stories to kids, I'll tell stories to veterans, ultimately to help them take control mm-hmm. of their own story. And the more I did that, I started getting you know, more invites to come speak or to come tell the same stories. I tell the same stories at a CEO talk that I do when I go speak to a the group, of, group of eighth graders from Seattle. Oh, so, so you started telling the stories at sure. the schools? Sure, just, you know, schools and just organizations that support veterans. There's, mm-hmm. uh, I'm on the board of a wonderful organization named Bunker Labs that helps veteran entrepreneurs uh, build a better network and do what you and I have tried to do as entrepreneurs, Carmen, take control of our own story. So, right. Um, That's- you know, there's so, there's so much need out there in the world right now, but you have to pick a lane. And the lanes that I've picked are helping kids that were like me mm-hmm. and helping veterans. That's awesome. Um, I think we'll do our, our last break uh, for today, and we'll be right back. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all of your calls live as if they're right there in your office. Together, you and Ruby transform your phone into the sales engine it was meant to be. Start setting your business apart today. Visit callruby.com forward slash startup radio to sign up or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code StartupRuby. And we're back with Bobby Herrera of Populous Group, and we were just talking about Bobby's story uh, telling and all of the different organizations he supports in terms of uh, speaking, including children. It was, it was I didn't know that part of your story that you mm-hmm. you actually go to school. So you, how do you identify? Uh, you know, you mentioned you like to share your story with kids from the wrong side of the track or, you know, that don't have the advantage. And so you've identified school districts or, you know, areas in the nation that you just go talk to those kids? Sure. So kids born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide, right? Right. I I call them students of struggle because these kids are getting so many gifts that Mm -hmm. they've yet to realize. And... I've worked very hard to be intentional to tell them my stories and my struggles and the gifts that I pulled from those lessons and how I applied them to future challenges. Mm -hmm. And I just tell them real stories that I experienced. And you can see their eyes just get big because they're finally realizing like, wow, Mm -hmm. this could be part of the plan. 
maybe struggles preparing me for something. That's awesome. And, uh, it's 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 a really wonderful, unique opportunity for me to connect with them and. To answer your question directly, though, my, my company's national, so I have locations in Detroit, Chicago, mm-hmm. San Francisco, Seattle, and a couple other small locations, but we, we do work on a national level, and we support these uh, kids' organizations across the country. So uh, sometimes different markets uh, where where there's a need, and we're real, we're real selective about where we mm-hmm. support these two areas of of our purpose for the company. Right. And so we did talk a little bit about your company, about what you do. And uh, let's dive a little bit into the book. Yeah. So the purpose Absolutely. of the book. And and uh, the book's going to be released uh, uh, in Amazon.com June 3rd. June 3rd. I've pre-ordered uh, for my staff. I know it's going to be an ex- a good read. So tell me about the book a little bit. What can readers expect? Sure. Well... First of all, writing a book wasn't on my list. Right. And, and that's just, why I ask, because, yeah, you know, a lot of times it's accidental journey, but a good sure, journey. Sure. Um, well, the primary essence of the book is mm-hmm. we all struggle. Mm-hmm. Every struggle teaches us something. That's the gift. Leadership is sharing those gifts. So it's a book on leadership. And I've written a series of stories, life-changing lessons that help me become the leader that I imagine. And so my hope is simple. I hope that by me sharing my struggles and the gifts that I learned from those struggles and how I shared them inspire others to do the same. Carmen, I just believe that the need for compassionate leadership has never been greater. Mm, I love that, compassionate leadership. Talk about that a little bit. What do you mean by a compassionate leadership? When I think about um, leadership, in, in my mind, in my very strong opinion, there's only one way to lead, and that's with your heart mm-hmm. and with your head. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's an and, not an or. And often in business, I see the head mm-hmm. win over the heart in that court of compassion. Mm-hmm. And I I see it differently. I see that they can both be very well aligned in those decisions of leadership. And I have a chapter in the book called Choose the Hardest Right about a lesson that I learned that forever changed my life and how I view leading with my heart. Mm. It's a story about my dad and uh, a very challenging time that I was going through with my dad and the struggle and how it played out in the business as I was growing my company. And it, uh, it, I'll never forget some of those lessons. And my hope is that by sharing these, mm-hmm. it helps other great people take control of their story so that they can become the leader that they imagine. Because it's a journey. Mm-hmm. It's not a destination. It's a journey. It's an infinite game that we're playing in becoming the leader that we imagine. Definitely. Can you, you know, I like that idea of um, the heart and the head connection. Can you mm-hmm. give an example of, um, of both? You know, when you, when you do the, the head but don't have the heart connection, sure. and then when you, when you do 
Well, when you do both is obvious, but just when sure. when you don't have the heart connection. Sure. Well, I'll I'll share. I'll do that by sharing a mistake that I made. Okay. Right. So often in business, um, you know, we get overwhelmed with a lot of these strategic parts of the business, right? Mm-hmm. Like the strategy and the business and the marketing and the technology, all the sexy stuff, mm-hmm. right? And that's a very comfortable place for entrepreneurs mm-hmm. to migrate towards, mm-hmm. which is why when you go to these conferences, these networking events, like mm-hmm. what's the what's the question, what's the most dominant question that you hear people ask when you go to a networking event? Where's the opportunity? Or what do you do, right? Okay, what do you do? Right, and if you recall at the beginning, mm-hmm. I started with, you know, why we exist and then how you behave. Like, what you do is important, but it pales in comparison to why you do it. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's so important mm-hmm. is the single most important asset that you will ever own as a leader or as a business owner is trust. Mm-hmm. Right? The more trust you have, the faster you can move and the less things cost. The less trust, the slower you move and the more things cost. It's very logical, mm-hmm. but in order to build that trust, you have to focus on intentionally building it. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you have to lead with your heart. You have to have vulnerable, real conversations with people. Mm-hmm. You have to raise your hand and say, hey, I really messed this up. Mm-hmm. You have to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with that. Mm-hmm. So to lead with your heart requires you to do those things that build trust. Mm -hmm. When you lead with your head and your head only, Mm -hmm. it's easy to hide in the book stuff, Mm -hmm. in those comfortable conversations. Mm -hmm. You have to have real uncomfortable conversations Mm -hmm. to build trust. Mm -hmm. Every relationship that we have that we value is -hmm. based on trust. So do you think that being very vulnerable with your employees' um, helps or to build that trust. I mean, I'm sure there'll be, you know, certain limits to that. But sure. but just like you said, you know, a little bit ago, you said just raising your hand when you need help. Like as the leader, you know, some people might be too proud to say, "Hey, guys, I'm going to need your help. I don't I don't know what to do here." Uh, Okay, you know, bring in a core team people that you're asking them for help and you're the leader of the company. Is that something, am I in visualizing it correctly? You, you've seen it a hundred times, Carmen. Okay. Like, I bought into the dogma that I had to have all the answers, that right. I couldn't show my weaknesses, that I always had to have my stuff together. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. It, it like is. Nobody does. And you know what's interesting though? Yeah. Is when I was on the other side of the table. Yes. When I was working for that boss, mm-hmm. I always knew when they didn't have their stuff together. Mm-hmm. I could see right through that nonsense. Yeah. And somehow when we become the leader, mm-hmm. we think that no one can see it. Right. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Right. So you absolutely have to have those conversations about what you're afraid of and what scares you. And what frustrates you. Mm -hmm. If you don't, it's impossible to build trust. If you just focus on the results without focusing on, you know, without vulnerability 
base trust in those conversations, you have no conflict. Mm-hmm. And without healthy conflict and having those real conversations, you're never going to make progress on the stuff that matters. Mm. Like, think about it. That's just the way the human animal works. Right. But when we get in business, all of a sudden we forget the stuff that really matters to us in life. Mm-hmm. It's not that, you know, one of my mentors, a very dear friend of mine uh, that uh, I actually write a chapter on him in the book, uh, Dr. Joe. Mm-hmm. He's real simple. Human behavior equal business behavior. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, part of our culture code and the essence of what we've tried to build and what I've worked hard to build is, hey, better people make better business people. Mm-hmm. So when we welcome climbers into our community and like, we focus very intentionally on trying to teach them these things, right? We hire only people who care. That's our acronym. And that's people that are candid, mm-hmm. accountable, resourceful, and exceptional. Like that's our, that's our acronym for them. Mm-hmm. And in order to be a great climber in our community, you have to care. But we teach them those behaviors and exactly how we expect them to behave. Oh, so, so that's you, an so, example of leading with heart. Teach people the things that matter. Mm-hmm. So do you have formal training in the company to teach them that? We, we've built our ecosystem to where, mm-hmm. you know, over time we've, you know, simplified our welcome and we have... A great team. Uh, my vice president of HR, mm-hmm. uh, Karen, she's fabulous. She has a phenomenal team mm-hmm. that focuses on our welcome and all the human systems that we have around how we select, how we welcome, and then how we develop. And like, there's an example, right? I believe organizations that have a real strong intentional culture mm-hmm. do three things better than anyone. Mm-hmm. They select well, they welcome well, and they develop well. And that's different than hiring, onboarding, and training. So I, I, I tell a lot of stories around that and give real examples you know, when I speak to organizations about the difference that that makes in you being able to build a culture that you imagine as a leader. That is a big difference. That's wonderful. I can imagine you have a lot of happy employees. Well, I'm, I'm blessed. Yes, I'm blessed. But I, I'm also very intentional about letting them know that, hey, we're going to be 17 in September. Mm-hmm. So technically, that puts us, what, back to our high school years, what, a sophomore or junior, right? Yeah. I, had, I didn't have it figured out when I was a sophomore right. or a junior, right? So we're just fortunate. We're a really big mm-hmm. sophomore and junior. Right. But I often tell them that we flunked a lot in those first five years. So we're like a big eighth grader. We still have a lot to learn. Yeah. And we're avid students of organizations that have built a great culture, though. I'm real yeah. proud of that. Yeah, well, I'm really proud of you. It just Thank Because, you. you know, you've done a lot in just 17 years. Your company is quite big. It's been an interesting journey. Yeah, so yeah. you have about how many employees right now? So we have a little under uh, between 250, 300 internal climbers. Mm-hmm. And we have approaching the 10,000 mark of... Uh, contractors of various mm-hmm. uh, classifications across the country working for us at different uh, organizations. 
Wow, that's... It's been an interesting journey. We've learned a lot, and we're going to remain students. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank and you. congratulations on your new book. Thank you. I think, you know, you said it all. Typically, we like to ask about lessons learned and advice, but throughout the entire podcast today, you've, you've given all these tidbits and wonderful advice, and I think uh, the audience uh, has a lot to glean on. So thank you, Bobby. It's my pleasure. And, and thank you all for this episode, for, uh, for coming. Uh, to listen. Uh, We'll be back next Friday, uh, Pacific Time, 1 o'clock, and have a great weekend. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.